Welcome to the Invictus Performance Podcast. We've got an exciting episode ahead in conversation with Wayne Lombard and Robin Arkell, the scientific advisors and strength and conditioning coaches of the Indian hockey teams. In part 1 of this series, Wayne and Robin give us an insight into their respective backgrounds and the story behind their success at the Tokyo Olympics with the hockey teams. We delve into the methods they have implemented while creating a high performance system to build better athletes and also discuss the importance of having a purpose and how it may be used as a driving force to harness athletic performance on and off the field. There's a good mix of topics here and we're sure that there's something for everyone to take away from this episode. you'd like to start going to yeah. start off with how you started off yeah. on this journey and kind of how it's brought you here yeah so my journey's been quite a long one so my actual study started in 2006 but I'll go back a little bit so my interest in sports science rehab and all those sort of things actually started while I was playing cricket so when I was younger um had a lot of back pain and those sort of things and no one actually diagnosed it correctly I wasn't exposed to proper training or anything to that effect and eventually I ended up at the Dolphins Academy which is in Durban and the pain it was just not going away so eventually I had scans and everything done and there were multiple stress fractures there so then I decided no, look, okay, I'm going to stop bowling and then just went into batting but then I also got started thinking to myself like something's gone wrong in the system something's not working correctly um and then our trainer there at that point I got chatting to him and seeing what they do and all those sort of things and then I actually got quite interested in I've always been someone who wants to be really fit and wants to do extra work and those sort of things. Um and then I spent 2 years doing a diploma in sports management because that was part of like a package at the academy. And then I'm like, "No, this is kind of boring. Let's uh, get into the nitty-gritty of sports science." And then registered in sports science in 2006, so it's a 3-year journey there for us. Um and then really wanted to focus on the rehab side of things and in South Africa there's a degree called biokinetics and then we go into really specific orthopedic rehab and those sort of things. So you have to have an undergraduate degree in sports science or human movement science or anything alike. Um and then you go into biokinetics as an honors course where it's really specific in rehab and clinical exercise science and those sort of things. Um and I really enjoyed that cuz I really wanted to go and dive into the rehab side of things cuz it helped me understand where did I go wrong in my career. Um then from there you have to do a one year internship. Um, and that can be anywhere but you have to do that internship so you can register as a health professional in South Africa. Um so I did mine at Sports Science Institute in South Africa in Cape Town and then got um interested more in high performance stuff. So I was employed at the High Performance Center in South Africa. Um and at the same time started the masters in biokinetics and those sort of things and spent 6 years or so at the Sports Science Institute. And from there At the sports science is very dynamic so you work with multiple teams multiple sports all the time and it's mostly national teams that you yeah. work with yeah. um and then at the same time registered for my masters and did the masters while working at sports science um and got working with hockey a little bit through sports science institute and then eventually ended up in China because the coach of the South African hockey team was in China <clears throat> and then he asked me whether I was willing to come across and work in China for a bit so I ended up in China At the same time after the master was finished res- registered for the PhD started that process um when i look back at it i think like it was a crazy move to start PhD while traveling and yeah, working exactly. but i think if i had to give any students advice i think that's what you should do because otherwise you spend 3 4 5 years doing a PhD and you lose that practical experience and i think i gained that practical experience at the same time yeah it took me 8 years to finish the PhD <laughs> but um in the end it's allowed me to get these experiences that I've had now um so yeah so eventually the PhD finished ended up in China finished up there and then got a call asking if I was going to keep willing to come over to India and yeah. uh, for IS yeah, Institute Institute of Sport for JSW yeah. and then spent 10 months here and then got another request whether I was willing to come across to Hockey and 5 years later <laughs> we are yeah so yeah so it's a bit of a long journey but yeah that's where that's my journey up until now I'm sure I'm sure it's just the beginning of your journey at this rate I hope so yeah. I hope so yeah yeah and the thing is what's wonderful about it is you you really appreciated the pressure and the intensity mm-hmm. of doing a phd as well as moving to a new country uh, it's a it's a lot to deal with especially when you move from and move to china and then move to india yeah culturally and the way people function and 
what they understand even and what what even what are they even understanding comprehending what you're trying to get from them if there is a gap in the way we communicate as as you know as indians as well and it's not really structured in a lot of ways yeah 100% i think one thing i learned while working at sports science is that that integration of research and application yes. um, and I had a really good supervisor and a good manager that really understood that and helped me understand it better because sometimes researchers we just want our athletes and everything just to be True. lab rats and we want True. to collect data and we want to do this but I think it's important to understand that they athletes first yeah. and my data must come second no matter what right. um, and I think I was able to bridge that gap quite well so I think if you're going to do a PhD while working that's something that you have to consider. Right. I mean, just give us a, a quick intro for, for the listeners who are yep. there about what your PhD study was about uh, so that we get everyone up to speed. Yeah. So the dissertation's uh, title is Monitoring Athlete Wellness. Jeez, um, now I forgot it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> monitoring, yeah, exactly. Um, monitoring Athlete Wellness, um, Training Load and Neuromuscular Fatigue, um, yeah. Implications for Training Status. Um, so basically looking at how we collect wellness data, training load data, as well as neuromuscular data through counter-movement jump or RSI, whatever it might be that you're looking at, mm -hmm. and marry that together to come up with certain assumptions on the training status of the athlete. Okay. And? So, give, yeah. us the, give us your <laughs> so, insights. So, to go to behind it, I think what we have found is that I think just like strength and conditioning is individualized, right. monitoring has to be individualized as well. Because there's certain tests that people are responsive to that, um, that others aren't responsive to. So, we've kind of coined the term monitoring specificity, right. um, kind of like strength and conditioning specificity. There has to be a point in our monitoring strategies where, okay, maybe you guys will respond to a counter-movement jump and that will be very responsive to you, but for me it's not as responsive and vice versa. And what we did find is wellness data seems to have a good relationship as a team perspective on prediction of match outputs, right. but when it comes down to individuals, it becomes very, very, very compared to what it would be as a team. So the team, the higher the team's wellness um, score for that day, generally the outputs on the pitch will be better. But then for each individual, it becomes very, very different um, accordingly. And this is primarily done with uh, a lot of data you collected with Indian hockey. Right? Yeah, so mainly over the 2018 period, where it was a very busy period for us. So we had many tournaments um, and plan on force plates and those sort of things. Um, but yeah, the, the key behind it is understanding how each individual is going to respond to different aspects of the whole monitoring system. Okay. And then marrying that together and making inferences from that to try and understand, okay, um, yeah, this is showing me X, Y, and Z. But in the end, what we also know is there's no one silver bullet. Uh, you have to collect a wide variety of data to make one decision in the end. So are we talking about just quantitative data versus qualitative? Like qualitative, yeah. like everyone needs to be at a high level. Yeah. But if you're looking at quantitative data and what are the factors affecting the wellness data, you're saying that that will be varied for each person uh, and that could be sleep data, could be yeah. counter movement, it could be... Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think a monitoring system, to make a monitoring system useful, you have to have the objective and subjective data, like you said. Right. And they have to, you have to try and marry those together. And then not only that, the GPS data wasn't part of my PhD, but I had that as part of my total monitoring system sure. that I was with the team. Um, and then once you've got the, the objective data, the subjective data, as well as your understanding of each athlete, because it drives conversation in monitoring. I think that's one of the most important things. It actually just drives conversation every single day because I'm getting the data from the athlete. So you get the wellness data first thing in the morning, you get to the gym session, you have a conversation with them, you get the jump data, you see, okay, wellness data is showing me X, jump data is showing me Y, and then you have the conversation, and you say, okay, both of those aren't actually giving me the answer, but the athlete gives me the answer. Yeah. Or the athlete's lying to me because the data is showing me X, Y, and Z. So I think you have to have all these different parameters. If I had to add one parameter into it, it would be a heart rate measure, so heart yeah. rate variability or heart rate recovery or something to that effect. Because um, then I think you get a very holistic um, approach to the monitoring system, but it just wasn't part of my, my study at that point. I'm sure that's a lot of data points anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, it was enough for yeah. one, one study. <laughs> enough for, you exactly. enough for, a, for a PhD. Yeah, enough, enough, yeah, yeah exactly. What about you, Robin? How about an intro? Um, yeah, so I've, I think I've been quite lucky because I've had Wayne ahead of me, so he's, he's sort of uh, carved the path um, yeah. and sort of advised me a lot in terms of where to go and what to do. We've come from a very similar place. We actually went to school together, um, grew up together pretty much. So uh, we've known each other for a long time. But um, my journey into sports science and where I am now, fairly similar. But I think I was just 
I don't know, I was just a sport crazy kid and always had aspirations of being a professional sportsman and traveling the world. And uh, when I realized that that wasn't going to be possible, um, the obvious next step was to try and get into doing the same thing, but just on a coaching level. So, um, yeah, I think uh, my passion for sports pretty much drove my um, desire to get into sports science and just understand uh, what it takes to become a professional sportsman and I think for me it's also been about trying to give another person the opportunity to do what I wasn't able to do. Um, like Wayne said, we came from an area which is quite small, we didn't have access to a lot of um, like expertise in terms of training and stuff, it wasn't really that big at that stage. Where, where so, in South Africa was that? Uh, it's a place called White River, okay. so it's uh, about four hours from Johannesburg, uh, very close to the Kruger National Park, so it's... Yeah. So did you play cricket as well? Beautiful area. Yeah, I played cricket. Um, what did you do? Batsman, wicketkeeper. Oh, okay. Batsman, wicketkeeper, and uh, a hockey player as well. I was probably a little bit better at hockey, but yeah. enjoyed cricket more. So, um, yeah, I tried to go into cricket, but it didn't work out. I also got an injury, a back injury, so it also sort of spurred things on in terms of finding out what the process was to rehab it properly and get back to performance. So, um, yeah, and then it just sort of happened, I don't, I don't really know, I went, um, studied at Stellenbosch University, which is a beautiful town as well, just outside Cape Town, um, then moved across to Cape Town, um, did my master's at UCT, University of Cape Town, and also did an internship at the High Performance Center with Wayne, um, and like you said, it was just like a place that stimulated you and exposed you to so much, um, and yeah, it kind of just, you know, drove that interest in working with athletes and um, yeah, growing as a professional, I guess. And I think while I was there, I got the opportunity to work with the university rugby team. Um, initially with the junior team, I was just going there, warming them up and as you know, how you start. Yeah. <laughs> Putting out the cones and picking out the cones. So, but yeah, it just, again, it just gave me an in and from there, literally, it, I don't know, it's just happened pretty quickly, to be honest. Um, yeah, lucky to be involved with the UCT rugby team. We did well in the national tournament. Um, from there, moved up into more of the professional structures in rugby, um, which was cool. I was there for about two years, so I got you know that experience of more of a combat type of sport. It's, it's pretty rugby is pretty big in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's, it's the primary sport. I think, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. Of, um, Passion, so I'm so passionate <laughs> about rugby. Um, so that was a cool experience. So I enjoyed that, and it it just gives you. A, different dimension to SNC so that was cool and then um, uh, Wayne gave me a call to say do you want to come to India um, and yeah I mean it was an opportunity you couldn't turn yeah. down so um, it was a tough decision to make I made the decision I arrived and I thought I had made the wrong decision <laughs> um, but yeah five years later it's like I wouldn't have changed it for you yeah, absolutely. yeah. especially on such a high well, I mean, it's, yeah, it makes it more rewarding, yeah, I think, absolutely. and worthwhile. It's not always why you do it, but now that you've done it and achieved it, you know. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's, so, it's, it, when you look back and look at the entire journey and what's come out of it, I'm sure it's, it's, a, it's an experience more than anything, it was a okay. journey more than anything. And, and how important was it for you all to have each other to start off this journey? How crucial, I know you're starting your own company together, <laughs> and that's how well it worked as a team. But like, how how did that dynamic actually help with the entire journey between both of you? Yeah, I think um, it's familiarity. Like, it's um, you come into a country which is not completely different to a country we come from, but sure. there's I mean, there's a lot of differences in terms Absolutely. of everything. So, yeah. um, I think just having that familiarity around helps a lot. Yeah. Um, and because like families are close and we've grown up together, it just yeah. it just it helps. You can have a conversation with. With the other one that you might not be able to have with someone else, so um, it's definitely it's allowed both of us to stay for five years. Now. <laughs> <laughs> also, just having someone to bounce off ideas. Yeah, I think yeah. I think if you come into a new environment and you got someone on completely different wavelengths, it also becomes a little bit difficult. Sure. Um, so just having we can sit down, have conversations about this, or why are you doing that, or whatever it might be, and we can disagree, but it's never going to be an issue. And then because um, he's working with a different team, we can like yeah. we can bounce things off because yeah. you've got an outsider's perspective on things. Sure. Um, 
I, I just wanted to tell you one story. Robin's, Robin's been a bit modest on Monty's. Uh, so in South Africa, we got a Varsity Cup uh, tournament, and he was involved probably one of the greatest comebacks of all time mm -hmm. in rugby history. So if you guys ever go and watch YouTube and just yeah. Google UCT comeback, Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the scores. Rob's will be able to tell you the whole story, but they came back from no, never ever winning, no chance of winning that game to the, one of the greatest comebacks ever. So it's yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, it will be on YouTube. Somebody pull it up. But, uh, <laughs> it's really good to watch. It's exciting. Even if I think about now, I get hairs. Maybe you should tell us a bit about it. Yeah, let Rob's give you the insights. Uh, you yeah, gotta so watch it now. <laughs> yeah, watch it. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's more emotional because I've got connection to the players and the whole journey of getting there. But I think for anyone watching it, it's if you understand rugby, it makes more yeah, sense yeah. because you mm -hmm. understand the. If not, you want to walk us through it. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, but I mean, it was an incredible um, journey. It was like so UCT rugby. So UCT as a university, University of Cape Town's um, one of the premier academic. It is the premier academic yeah. university in Africa. Um, but it has a strong sort of identity towards sport, but they never really uh, recruit at the same level as any of the other universities. So first hitter. Um, <laughs> but then you see, there's a lot of stuff with endurance and uh, yeah. So there's Tim Noakes has been there. And he drives that side. Yeah. So where, where are you? So uh, so I'll give you a bit of context to this. So rugby uh, match is 80 minutes. So there's um, just less than six minutes left. Um, and we are losing, whatever that is, 18 points. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, 18 points with six minutes to go, teams just sort of give up, you know. It's yeah. something that, Usually, yeah. that's never really thought about. Um, but, like, the interesting thing that, that about this whole thing is that the two previous seasons, the team had won one game oh. in the past, in the previous two seasons. So... Um, for this campaign, they employed a completely new coaching staff. Um, they employed me as the SNC, who had never had a head SNC role before. So, like, it just the whole combination of everything was, you know, strange from the beginning. But we weren't. We were tipped, obviously, to get relegated again. Um, we lost our first game by like twenty points or something, um, but then won every single game from there on. So it was like just one of those moments where something, you know, changes. Um, and yeah, we got to this point, um, obviously underdogs, we were playing away at their home ground, uh, Pack Stadium, um, yeah, six minutes to go, 18 points down. Um, and one of the themes throughout the tournament was never, ever, ever give up. It was something that the coach just drilled into the boys. Um, and you'll actually see a clip towards the end where one of our players is shouting it out to the guys around him. Oh. Uh, he's like, one more, one more, never give up, never give up. And we're, it was over time already. So just the whole sort of thing came in and actually came to fruition, which is quite cool, under pressure. And so, yeah, let's give it a watch. So you get five points for a try, three points for a, two points for a conversion. And then and a half left of regulation time. <laughs> you can just imagine from a conditioning perspective, so like... 33 down, it means they've been defending most of the game, and that yeah. just kills you, and they're still able to produce it, so Rob's obviously did something right. He's <laughs> <laughs> a fireman, eh? Yeah. yeah. The boys have been pretty bad at this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's an intensive tournament. It's eight weeks, I think, playing every Monday, traveling around the country. Um, as student athletes, all of them are studying yeah. full-time as well. It's a long play. It is very long. Oh, it's got a bag. I've seen this a million times, I'm getting nervous. They don't know what to think. Rob's at the back there somewhere. Yeah, so, cool. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that was the first time training rugby athletes, you said, right? Uh, first full-time, yeah, position with yeah with a team with rugby. I mean, rugby in South Africa is maybe the equivalent of cricket here. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of the sports that gives you an opportunity as an SNC. Mm -hmm. um, so it was always kind of yeah a sport that I most likely get involved in from an SNC pers uh, perspective. So yeah. 
but the physical preparation for rugby is something that's really really critical right um, so then, what, what would you typically break up a week like what what kind of training would you do on monday wednesday Friday, so yeah so the the typical um structure in rugby is that you play games on a saturday yeah. during the season so a typical in season training week will be a monday tuesday wednesday or thursday friday play saturday um, those are the typical sort of training weeks that we'd use. Um, Sundays would be a recovery day. Uh, Monday would be quite a light day. You just come in and do a bit of skills and uh, light sort of gym work and stuff, just a flush. Uh, Tuesday would be our heavy day, but we'd break it up into more uh, contact-based days and more speed-based days. So Tuesday would be our contact day because it would be sort of 72 hours post previous mm-hmm. stimulus and then also 72 hours before the next one. So. In rugby, your contact, that's where you're getting the most muscle, uh, muscle damage. So yeah. trying to keep it away from the next game as far as possible. So Tuesday would be a heavy day. They'd come in in the morning, smash each other. Um, <laughs> like the intensity of the training is just insane from that point of view. Yeah. Just like yeah. guys are just smashing into each other as hard as they can. Sure. Um, and then your yeah, evening or uh, afternoon sessions would be a gym session. Uh, Wednesdays would be off. Thursday would be more of a speed-based um, day. Uh, mm-hmm. So more sort of yeah, little, little base, yeah. yeah. So just trying to play at, at, at speed, more of an attack day. So we yeah. limit limit the number of contacts. Yeah. Um, and then when uh, so then Friday would be we call it a captain's run. So yeah. we just come in and it's just a really light session, just running through tactical plays. Um, the captain would generally run the show, um, just for them to feel good and confident. Yeah. And the Saturday would play. So um, a fairly standard sort of structure in terms of. An in-season microcycle. Yeah. And did you do much on the in terms of resistance training? That was weight-based. Was it more cords, resistance cords, or what was that? Uh, no, yeah, no. Right. I mean, rugby guys just love lifting weights. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they need to lift as heavy as they can. So it's like, yeah, it's it's a bit of an ego thing as well. I think. <laughs> yeah, guys, but, good, yeah. but it's also a crucial part of preparation because of all the contact stuff so they actually yeah. need to be able to handle handle those forces yeah um so there's a, yeah, a hugely uh weight dominant um snc sort of structure to the training okay. i think now obviously you learn more and you develop and you probably start introducing certain other things or yeah. just structuring things differently but um yeah just the sort of standard um strength speed or speed strength type of stuff yeah. and then um Depending on the phase of the season and the phase of the off season, you're going into a more power-based stuff. Uh, sprinting has obviously always been a big part of my philosophy, so that was always yeah, yeah. Um, There's one off season where I used um, like the typical triphasic-based approach then, yeah. um, to, to training. Um, I thought it worked quite well. Did you do like the two weeks of uh, two weeks of each, or did you do a longer phase of uh, time? No, two weeks. So the first season um, I tried it was the standard two week eccentric, right. one week deload, two week isometric, deload concentric. Right. Um, so that was the first sort of preseason that I used it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second preseason, then I adapted it just through talking to different um, coaches. Um, and split up the triphasic stimulus across the week, so different days at a different stimulus. Um, I quite like that as well. I thought it worked. It's really well. at this point, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's sort of like, yeah, maybe closer to like an undulating approach to the yeah. training week as well. Yeah. Microdose it through the week. Yeah. And start from the slow to the isometric, and then concentrate yeah. closer to match days, and you still have a lot of the injury proofing that happens in the in the beginning of the week. Yeah, exactly. And as you go through the intense tactical sessions, you still have to be isometric, which is very safe. So I, th- I think I broke it up. Tuesday was an eccentric day. Okay. Um, so you put the contacts and the eccentric together, so you have yeah, that high load all together. Yeah, try and stimulate or try and combine the stimulus as much as possible. Right. Um, an isometric day on a, on a Thursday, and mm-hmm. then a normal concentric, more speed-based day on a Saturday. Okay. Um, so that's how I broke it up at that yeah. stage. Yeah, different approaches, but I think both can work well, well just yeah. depending on your length of time, I think, of preparation that you've got. Absolutely. Uh, also, like, using it in-season as well as pre-season, if you have enough of time to build up into the season and if the athletes, I guess, are uh, experienced enough to handle that kind of load, mm. otherwise it's just safe or you just break it into smaller chunks and if yeah. an inexperienced athlete, it works very well. Yeah. So. Yeah, geez, I don't think I'd use, like, a, a strict 
um, eccentric protocol like in season for rugby. Yeah. Just because of the damage is so high already from all the contacts mm. and stuff. Sure, sure. Um, but you can definitely. Yeah, microdose, microdose yeah. certain elements of these. Yeah. I'm sure with rugby, especially because there's so many of the contacts and the damage, you have to really modify your training to a large extent because of uh, injuries, just just because of injuries. Yeah. So, um, how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it is a challenge because, um, I mean, often the guys will come in on a Monday and they, their shoulders are still stuffed, you know, contusion-wise, and they're just sore and beat up, so... Um, it's difficult to have like a proper lift um, in terms of trying to lift heavy. So yeah. that's why I said Mondays are generally just like a lighter day, just a flush. Um, you can st- we still did weights, but it'd just be lighter and hypertrophy based yeah. uh, mostly. Um, and then yeah, I mean you have to modify. So if someone's got like a huge contusion on their legs, it's they're not going to want to squat and deadlift, you know, two hundred kgs type of thing. So yeah, you end up having to manage it. But I think it's the same in anything. It's like in hockey, you get contusions as well from ball hits, so you can manage it accordingly. But um, just because there's so many contacts in rugby, you're probably modifying a little bit more in terms of from that perspective. Sure, sure. Um, but they're also tough guys. They're like, <laughs> if it's a gym session, they don't want to modify gym session. Especially an upper body gym session. They'll never skip an upper body gym session. They no chance. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, you try and sort of, you know, manage that side of things as much as possible, but it the guy wants to go for it, <laughs> he's going to go for it, as long as it obviously doesn't affect the on-field training yeah, as yeah. well, so um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's trying to just balance that side of things as well, but they eat weights for breakfast, <laughs> <laughs> that's all they want to do, I think sometimes they get into rugby just to be professional gymmers, you know, <laughs> um, you know a cool experience. Yeah. So what was China like, man? China, well, that was an interesting experience as well. So, like, there the culture is very, very different to yeah. anywhere in the world, I think. Yeah. Um, one thing they do like a lot is training for serious durations of time. Yeah. So that's something we try to train. That was one of the things that was the mandate from a coach when I came in, is that they really wanted to improve the repeat sprint ability type stuff, the high yeah. speed stuff, because they're really good at doing things for a long time, but yeah. quite slow. Because there's a lot higher amounts of volume. Yeah, volume. So I I had guys waking up on match day going for 10-kilometer runs because that's just what they would do. Um, That's just the way they feel good doing it. Um, So it was a bit of an education process. It also took a lot of buy-in from the administration side because the way China works is that they're full-time athletes. They must be training uh, while they're resting, while they're in their rooms, while they're sleeping, those sort of things. Um, so that was a bit challenging for me because my side of things, like recovery is quite important. Well, most, yeah. most, most of us, recovery is important, so we needed to try to get that around. Um, so, yeah, so again, so the approach had to change from the high-volume stuff to the more intensity stuff. And the players loved it, but it took quite a bit of buy-in from the local coaches because it was very, very different to what they... Um, have experienced in the past. So, sure. yeah. And what are the results? I mean, how did the... Yeah, so initially we did well. So we won a couple of tournaments there. Uh, so China also works where it's tournament-based. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, physically we saw some good results. We saw some good improvements and that sort of thing. But ultimately, they always want to go back to what they like yeah. and they're yeah. comfortable yeah. with. What's worked, so what they think. Uh, uh, yeah. So it was a bit of headbutting quite a bit of time. So eventually sure. it was a point where like... Um, where we had to like, okay, agree to disagree and then move on. Yeah. Um, and the same for the co- the foreign coach that was there. We're like, yeah. okay, look, we're never going to implement the, the exact structures that we want. They're seeing yeah. results and the players are loving, the injuries are decreasing or whatever. But effectively, China wants to stay China. Yeah. Um, and in team sport, it's very different for them. And they're not, they're not that good in team sports. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is one of the problems is that they, they, they train kind of old standard high volume slow and they just can't keep up with the western sure. way of playing right, hockey yeah. and, and it shows in their hockey they, yeah. the men's team will never qualify for the olympics at this point in time yeah. um, whereas i think they can because i think they've got the talent yeah. uh, they just probably need to change their mentality and their training methodology to be able to get there yeah. so yeah. Like, to, to a large extent there was a lot of similarity in india as well in terms of how we played sport which is a lot of volume a lot of practice yeah. very skill based it's, yeah. it's about have, hitting one gear and then maintaining that gear throughout the game and it's the number of games that you play. Uh, did you face that when you came to India or was it only an evolving system that, that you got into? Um, I think yes and no. I think like when we came, because there were foreign coaches here already, they, they had their ideas of doing things. 
Um, it also took the foreign coaches a little bit of time to understand because some of them came from non-centralized programs. And when you come into a centralized program, it's like the players are available to you and you just want to do lots of stuff all the yeah, time. Yeah. So it was a bit of an education process for the coaches also that, look, okay, we've got access to the players, but we also have to be smart on what we're doing. So if we're not um, training on this day, it's they're not going to be worse athletes because we take one half day off or whatever it is. So it was an education process similar to what China was. Okay. Um, but once they started seeing the physical results, then they understood, okay, okay, maybe this approach is working. It might not sure. be the best approach, but it yeah. seems to work for the athletes. Right. Um, and what we have to remember when we come into a, a system like what is here in India is that most of these players, like Roger was saying, some players have been in the system for 17 years. Yeah. So they're running on wear and tear, some of them. So we've got to treat some of them a little bit differently compared to the junior players coming in. And how can we structure the program that fits best for the new players coming in and also the slightly older players that have been in the system a whole lot yeah. And volume is a huge issue. And time and feet, and I don't think people realize how dangerous time and feet can be yeah. if not monitored really well. Right. I mean, did you all have different programs that were periodized for the senior athletes versus the junior athletes? Or did you all taper differently? Did you all peak yeah. differently? Yeah. Um, so, yes and no again. I think it all depends on the period of the season, where we are in the season. I think leading up to tournament, and my philosophy is that in a team sport, is everyone needs to be fit, everyone needs to be agile, everyone needs to be fast, regardless sure. of who you are. And I think if anyone tells me they're individualized for 33 or 66 athletes, they're lying to you. Okay. So, I would say 70% of my program is probably the same for everyone, sure. and then I modify the other 20, 30% that are that I do for individuals. There are one or two players that really need specifics and they have to be modified quite a lot. Sure. But like I said, I think a 70, 30 or 80, 20 split on individualization, if you can call it that, is what I'd work on. Um, otherwise you're spending the whole day behind a computer programming rather yeah. than actually coaching. So um, how many players do we have like a piece? So, so generally in each team it's 33. But then we're also overseeing the juniors for quite a lot of our contract. So yeah. end, ending up working with 66 athletes most of the time. So it becomes, yeah, so it becomes quite busy. Right. Um, so to program individually for 66 athletes, I don't think, I, I don't believe that anyone programs individually no, um, yeah. unless you... Did you have working bunch players up? So exactly. Like, did you have pool players up saying that, okay, we'll put yeah. uh, this, yeah. this set of players with these injuries or uh, this fitness state in one, uh, in one pool? while the others would get another another pool of... Uh, and you've got variations of exercise. So you know, sure. okay, this person can't do hand clean, so you can do this, whatever it sure. might be. So these small right. little variations that you put into the program to right. benefit that person. Um, but completely individualizing, I also don't think it's going to make a difference in their performance, to be sure. honest. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that's how I would approach it generally. What about you, Robin? Yeah, I think we have a lot of debates about this, <laughs> the individualization of programming. and. I don't, uh, I don't have anything really different to say to what Wayne has said, um, other than I think, and it's something that I maybe took from like the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, where their philosophy and training, and this is more based around skill training, is that they try and get player 1 to 15, um, all to have the same skill set. So in rugby, uh, number uh, the prop who's number one has a very different role in the team to number fifteen. Okay. Fifteen is more of like the running back in the NFL. He's yeah. he needs to be fast and light and nimble and evasive. Whereas the uh, prop is you know more contact based, sure. short distances. So there's very different uh, requirements in a game. But what they wanted is they they wanted all their players to be able to execute the same skill no matter what position they played. Right. So if the prop was in a position on the wing, he needed to be able to throw a backhand pass, the same as what the wing needed to do. Yeah. So I thought that was quite an interesting concept. And then I tried it, I thought about it in terms of hockey. Like hockey is such a chaotic sport where there's no offside. Yeah. So I mean, you're going to get your defender running up front. Yeah. He could be the only per the, the guy in the D, at, you know, as a striker. Yeah. That's just how that's just how the game works, yeah. type of thing. A defender needs to make an 80-meter sprint back, same as what a forward needs to do. So Although there are slightly different requirements or outputs from a match, right. at some point in time they all need to perform the same type of physiological output. Right. So, in terms of individualizing it to say a defender only needs to do you know this type of running or whatever, it's I find it's you know, sort really of like difficult. total football, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, hockey, hockey is exactly that. Yeah. Like it's 
it's chaotic, it's fast, it's um, dynamic. Everyone needs to be able to sprint, change direction. Everyone needs to have a huge aerobic base because if you look at the tournament demands, each every player needs to be able to handle those same demands. Yeah, sure, some people are going to be exposed to more sprints than someone else, but if your defender is prepared to handle what the striker is prepared to handle in terms of from a sprinting perspective, he's effectively more resilient. So that's sort of how I approach it. I don't know if it's correct, but that's just sort of like I mean, I try to simplify it down a little bit. Um, and then I think through hockey, you play. We play a lot of hockey, so. A lot of the conditioning and the tactical training takes care of a lot of Yeah, that. and they're playing hockey in their position. They're playing as a defender, so they're getting the individual requirements to actually play the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then <coughs> topping up where needed. So that was the nice thing with the GPS is that we could then see, okay, well, this guy hasn't hit his targets for today. Yeah. Um, we can then give him a certain type of top-up to do. So you, you did that routinely in all the training sessions in terms of looked at who's not hit their targets and then... Um, get them to do kind of an extra session or post session supplementary work. Yeah, I mean, so I will say like it's obviously blocks of training where we prescribe um, sort of outright conditioning, um, but because the hockey schedule is so chaotic or so dense in the sense that we don't have long preparation periods normally, um, we've got to get most of it through playing hockey, yeah. um, and that's where we've sort of developed a system where we're breaking down the game demands from a single game. And that would then prescribe like a, a single session, but then you're also looking at your tournament demands, where you're looking at then your weekly demands from an overall perspective, but then also your whole phase of training. Um, and then what I did is, um, so I've got each individual's thresholds uh, based on their game data, and then depending on the type of session that we have, they need to hit a certain type of output so that we know they've got a certain physiological adaptation. So as an example. If it's a speed day, I want to know that we've hit um, a certain amount of sprints or sprint distance per minute, and that's all. Each individual's got their thresholds, and okay. I can see from the GPS. Okay, well, uh, um, Varun, you haven't hit your threshold. I then need to do a certain number of sprints with you. Someone might have hit their sprint threshold, but they haven't hit their total distance threshold for this session. So then they they can do a different type of running. Yeah. So that's kind of how I try to individualize it. Um, it's more system driven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think we were speaking earlier and you were talking about how one of your main uh, priorities in terms of training variables is intensity. Um, i just like to understand a little bit more about why that is and uh, how you go about prioritizing intensity as a variable in hockey specifically, be it in the gym, be it in sprinting, yeah. uh, be it on, on the bench. Um, yeah, well, hockey is the fastest team sport game in the world, I think. Um, so again, it, like we, I'm taking everything from a game demand. So we can see in a game, like at peak periods, players are hitting over 200 meters per minute. So from a sort of like a, a smaller level, we need to expose them to those type of demands or intensities. But then as an overall game demand, you're getting guys at an average of 166, 170 meters per minute for a game, which is yeah. huge intensity in, yeah. a, in a team sport environment. So. Um, and that's what kind of makes the difference and Wayne can maybe talk about that later is when uh, we've actually sort of nailed it down in the sense that the intensity part is what makes the difference in the outcome of the game um, and it's also the difference between the level of teams that you're playing against so if you're playing a higher ranked team the intensity of the game is generally higher and if you're playing and if you um, if you win generally your intensity metrics are also higher so it's one of the determining factors as to a result of a hockey game. I think you've written a paper on that as well, right? Yeah, so I did it on the Chinese China, China group. Um, and like Rob says, like with we're talking about the player profile, so we and Rob said about the aerobic profile of um, hockey players and mm -hmm. everyone needs to have a big aerobic base. So most of actually all my fittest players will always perform the highest amounts of high speed running and most sprints in a game as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the highest yo-yo test or highest VO2 max will always be the same players. That, yeah. um, and that's that's why I think even my philosophy has changed over the years about the aerobic base but I think it's how you get there that's the key yeah. and people don't really talk about that. Everyone's like sure. yeah you must run fast and all that but it's actually how you get that aerobic base that becomes important in the sports. Um, and for example, in hockey, like Rob says, is that the, one of the biggest determining points of winning is probably meters per minute. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the higher the meters per minute, the more pressure you're putting on the opposition. Actually. With the Indian team, what, what was interesting or what, what 
people had to start understanding is that technically, yeah, they're good, but because we're not the best in the world, we had to play at 120% every game to win a game. Right. So physically, we had to be really good to be able to compete in a tournament and um, to be able to recover from every game. Whereas a team like Holland, they are just so technically good and tactically aware. Efficiency. Exactly. The efficiency is so high, they don't even bother up a sweat. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can, they, they, they'll peak at the end of the tournament. Whereas, yeah, we want to peak at the end of the tournament, but we can't risk peaking in the tournament because then we're going to struggle in the beginning of the tournament. And we saw that yeah. at the Olympics. So the first three games we lost under a serious amount of pressure. And then eventually we won the next two games, qualified, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's where that intensity comes in. If, if you can't handle that intensity and recover from those repeated bouts, it becomes very, very difficult. Um, and a, a program process that Rob's and I walk generally follows that whole multi-mechanical model, if you want to call it that. And one thing that you want to do in hockey is try and expose the players to different types of small-sided games, where, say, for example, we've been 4v4, where it's a very big change of direction, and you get very, very heavy legs and big lactate-type um, uh, stimulus. Um, and then you've got a speed-based session, and then generally on a Saturday we'll have an endurance session, which is more 8v8, 9v9, or 11v11, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and I think if you can get those right, and then with those first two sessions, so you've got that um, change of direction focus, you've got the speed focus, and then you've got the endurance focus. If they can start implementing those two sessions in that endurance session, then you start ticking boxes. And then you say, okay, we're actually preparing them for what they actually require in tournaments. So using the tactical periodization model with the GPS data to get small simulations of the intensities that they would face during during the tournament. Yeah. And then supplement whatever you, whatever is missing. So you're kind of creating, recreating aspects of game day intensity in small doses, yeah. so you still get the volume yeah. at a higher intensity as well. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's something that like we worked on is, we like you said, we've been around for a while, so we understand exactly what our tournament demands are. Yeah. So say for tournament demands are X for every variable that we look at, then we look at standard deviations of that X and we say, okay, at some point we need to go one or two standard deviations behind those average demands of that tournament. So above, you mean above, uh, above, yeah. above that, so not only from volume but also from intensity perspective. Mm-hmm. So say for example, Anya in the Olympics, if we want to reach a knockout stage, we need to be able to cover between 50 to 60 kilometers in two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. With that is around about four to five kilometers of the high speed running. Okay. So then I work backwards from there and say, cool, what do we need to do to make sure that we are prepared for those demands that the players would probably um, be exposed to? And then you can just say, okay, we're going to start at whatever, maybe half a standard deviation below or two, three standard deviations below at whatever time period and build it up slowly. Because at some point you have to hit those demands within your training, but it's also important where you hit those demands. Because um, if you do it too late, you're yeah. going to fatigue them. Um, if you do it too early, you don't get those adaptations. And then throwing the heat into um, a factor as well with yeah. Tokyo. Um, I think I said in one interview that I think in our bronze medal match, and um, it was 45 degrees at mm. half time. 45 degrees? Yeah. So it was extremely hot. And actually, in the end, I feel, and I spoke to the SNC of the English, they, they feel it actually helped them a little bit because they got extra breaks. Whereas I felt we needed to carry on because the intensity was picking up and we wanted to carry on sure. with that. But in the end, that's, that's the way it works because the rules change a little bit because of the um, yeah, heat. High temperature, high humidity as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I'm sure we have better tolerance for heat. Uh, yeah, I would assume so. They did a lot of work. All the other teams did a lot of um, work on heat and that sort of thing. I personally feel, and Rob's can say what he feels, but I feel it was overemphasized for team sports. Right. I think it would have a more impact on your endurance athletes right. because of our substitution schedules. And right. we on three, four minutes, they off. Then we, if you get those acute recovery patterns right when they're off the pitch, generally they recover well enough. And again, I think we've planned it well enough to get that robustness and that resilience to those demands also. Um, so that I still think the best recovery mechanism is to get your athletes resilient to those demands that they're going to ex- be exposed to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we did like to think we did quite well at exposing to what they would experience in those games and that tournament. In terms of recovery, what, what strategies did you adopt? Um, or monitoring like the non-training data? Yeah, was it strict? Was it you generally give them guidelines? What yeah, there are guidelines to do. Um, just trying to think how we're gonna how we're gonna answer it. Uh, basically, like Wayne said, I think the biggest recovery story was just preparing them to handle those demands. And if yeah. we knew that they could handle those demands, um, 
that was sort of the biggest box box ticked, uh, ticked. But then I think just the standard ones. I mean, ice bars were were a standard one post games. Um, the nutrition became quite an important thing. So yeah, I, th- I think you guys did a lot of work for that as well. Yeah. yeah. So we worked with the dietitian very closely, and um, she was able to sort of um, periodize the nutrition side of things based on. Um, you know the games that we're playing at what time of the day we're playing what our schedule was coming up so um, that's obviously an important aspect of recovery as well um, the one thing that I feel Indian athletes are really good at is like the recovery aspect um, their sleep is obviously they love sleeping so, <laughs> um, so afternoon nap yeah uh, it takes a big box it's like especially with the rugby guys to try and get them to sleep in the middle of the day as possible whereas you know, with, with these with these athletes, it's you're ticking a big box there. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think just sort of other things that are pretty normal: compressions, um, game readies, recovery pumps. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else. But uh, one thing, sorry, sorry. Uh, the one thing that, that we did try and do is um, use a sort of like a decision-making matrix to determine what type of recovery they needed. Okay. So based on the data that we're capturing. We could then, and this comes into the individualization part of it, but we could then say to an individual, well, you in this quadrant, you need this type of recovery. Um, if there's a general trend of the team towards a certain quadrant, then obviously you can, you know, you, you apply a, a global recovery strategy, but then... To the whole team. Then. As a whole team, but if there's an outlier in a certain quadrant, then you can say, okay, well, uh, Bruin, you need this type of recovery as well. So um, that's how we use the data in terms of implementing the recovery strategies. Yeah, I think one, one, one difficult thing on hockey tournaments is it's quite, you'll get back-to-back games, mm-hmm. non-back-to-back games, singular games, all sort of things. So one thing we tried also is trying to change the recovery strategy a little bit from back-to-back games for the recovery. I think one game we had less than 24 hours recovery between the two matches because mm-hmm. there was a delay because of rain. Okay. Um, so one thing I try to make sure of, especially on the back-to-back games, is avoid, because when you go to the... Uh, mess in the Olympics, everything and anything's available. Mm-hmm. And the players, they, they're generally very disciplined because it's, like I said, it's been a buying process for a long time. Um, so a couple of things I really wanted them to avoid in the back-to-back games was just fried food. It was just kind of like a suggestion and yeah. they, they listened to it. And then also implemented a post-match, about four or five hours after the match, we went to the gym, had a light cycle, but actually intervals that we did, and then some stretching and that sort of thing, for, specifically for back-to-back matches. Okay. Um, but otherwise, like Rob said, I think the nutrition and sleep are the vital. And our first two games were at 9, 9 p.m., <clears throat> excuse me, in the evening. Um, so then we ended up, you eat, eat dinner at 1 a.m., and mm. then the sleep patterns are completely buggered. So the main emphasis is trying to get them to sleep as quickly as possible, because you can imagine in games, we're still using caffeine and that sort of thing. So now yeah. we're caf- giving them caffeine at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. Um, so their sleep patterns are completely buggered. They're eating at 1 o'clock. So generally the next day that, that sleep patterns run. So we want to try and uh, make sure that they get that right. Well, you say caffeine is something that you, know, you definitely use for most games before yeah. the game? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. I think it really, it's one of the things that's got the most research on at the moment. I think it also depends on each individual to get outliers yeah. as well. Um, so we use caffeine gum quite a lot, mm-hmm. um, and then also SIS surge gels, yeah. um, which has got caffeine yeah. and glucose in it. And that generally I use that at half time. So they can have an option between, they also got an option of fruit if they really want it. Mm-hmm. Most of my players don't like to eat anything at halftime, mm-hmm. um, but they'll have a, a gel or a, um, extra caffeine gum if they can. Do, do you have a period of uh, cycling the caffeine on and off, or is it something that you have to use only for tournaments? How do you go about deciding how much caffeine? And... Um, yeah, I try to as much as possible. I think <clears throat> it is important with caffeine to try and bring them off it at some stage just to get that um, sensitivity back. Um, but there's also, you obviously need to expose them to it also in yeah. training so that they get used to the demands of caffeine because, yeah. it, like Wayne said, it does affect your sleeping patterns yeah. mm-hmm. and how you handle it. So um, it's the same thing as like the physical size. You've got to sure. uh, periodize and introduce yeah. all that yeah. sort of stuff as well. So yeah, definitely during training periods, we'll be um, implementing those same strategies mm-hmm. um, just so that there's a sense of familiarity to it as well. Um, but then trying to bring them off it at some stages just so that they do get do regain that sensitivity. And was it uh, something that everyone was on board or did it take a time, take some period for everyone to start trying it and then get used to it? What was that journey like? Was it fairly easy to implement? 
I think it's, you know, I mean, it's, or is it still individualized? it's an educational thing. So um, our dietitian did do quite a few sort of educational things around sure. um, certain nutritional strategies. And then I think just through our conversations on a daily basis with athletes and educational material that we give them as well, it's over time they buy into it. Yeah. Um, obviously not everyone is going to do it because they just don't like it or caffeine doesn't sit well with them or whatever. So um, it's up to them. Pretty much, but I'm letting them understand what the benefits of using it is. Right, um, part, of the, part of the education process. Yeah, part of the education process. Have them make that decision. But, the, but that's the interesting thing about the Olympics, because everyone on TV just sees that end product. Right. But the, like I said, I think it was like 30,000 training hours that went into yeah. getting into Olympics. And it's that education process over those five years. And yeah, with an example, um, just implement caffeine gel at this point, whatever it is, Absolutely. it is that phasing in process. Yeah. and. And some players will ask questions and some players will just say, oh, if it gives me energy, it's give it to me. Or if some players will just don't care, I'll just have whatever you tell me is good for me. Um, but definitely it is an education. And in the end, by the time we got to the Olympics, it was, this is what I've got available for you. You choose. So this is where the whole autonomy part exactly. came to once. Yeah. They and understood you all, you all understood Exactly. Um, and I think that's important because like initially when I came, I was quite dictatorial. Like, okay, this is what we need to get done. And I did that purposely because I felt they weren't at that point where they could make their decisions correctly for themselves. Right. And it also allowed me to learn about the players better. But then over the course of the time, it became very, very like, okay, you feel this recovery strategy works for you, go for it, use it. Yeah. You feel caffeine gum works for you, use it. If you don't use it, it's also fine. Um, but it, take, it takes time to get that sort of trust in the players to be able to make those individualized decisions. Um, and I, I feel that's more individualization than what exercise they're going to do in the gym mm -hmm. in the end. So, yeah. yeah. I think along those lines, I think one of the things that both uh, Rob and you have been able to do is get a really large amount of buy-in from the players. Uh, I, I think in the what would be really interesting to hear is how over these five or four and a half years, you've managed to get this whole process of getting that in uh, from when you came in till, till, till today. Uh, how did you go about doing that? And that's a big, big question. Uh, it's a big question. Um, I think uh, it starts with who we are. I think is people like people ask us the question, but it's for me. It's I don't. I haven't done anything abnormal. It's just I'm being who I am. I think. Yeah. Um, and the obvious, the big thing is that just showing the players that we're really there for them. Um, whatever we're doing, we're trying to make them better at what they're doing and what they want to achieve. So we're there to support them. And I think as soon as they understand that we're there to actually help them and get better. Um, they start building that trust. Um, the other big thing I think is that we've just been able to spend a long time with them. Um, I think they may be used to having people coming in and going uh, fairly soon. So there was like that period of time where they were worried about giving their trust um, because then they were worried about, you know, that thing breaking up again. Absolutely. So yeah. I think once they realized like, yeah, I'm here to stay, then, you know, they start buying into it and they start, you know, they feel comfortable connecting. Relationships is always a period of time. So um, once we've been there for that, you know, yeah. for a year, two years, three years, um, it just becomes easier. Uh, I'm sure it's coming closer and closer to the Olympics, but the entire team together much closer because now you have a goal. And I'm sure all of you all were gung-go about it and that changed a lot of the energy as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a big tournament like that's always going to bring people together. <laughs> um, but it's like we've always spoken about. It's just, it's the process of, like the four years, the five years, it's like every single training day, every single connection that you've made over time that's accumulating and, you know, getting you to the point of then performing and, you know, putting together as a team when it's needed. Um, there's one other point I wanted to make, which I forgot. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think if you look at the whole APA philosophy, our philosophy is human being first, athlete, then specifically into their sport. Okay. Um, and I think that philosophy really helps us because... Um, we get to know the people or the athlete as humans and really individually and personally and everything about their families. Literally, we spend 24 hours a day with them, seven days a week for 365 days a year almost. Um, so you really get to know them. And if, if you can't get to know people in that period of time, you're never going to get their trust or buy-in. And if you're also not willing to open up to them at some point, and, and I'm not the most emotional person, not someone that's just going to tell everyone anything, but with these players... Hearing their background stories and understanding where they come from, 
just allows you to open up as well because it's it's really inspiring where the players come from. Um, and once they understand that you actually care about them as individuals, one you ask questions about their families, you ask questions about whatever it might be other than the sport, then everything else starts seems to just take care of itself. Then then they'll do anything in the gym, they'll do any conditioning they want you ask them to do. Um, so I think that philosophy really helps us in our approach to what we do. On those lines, do you have any particular incidents or stories that something that really struck out to you or really stood out to uh, on on these lines and really getting buy-in and uh, getting both both sides of the party to kind of open up to each other? Yeah. So we had one tour where the coach did a like almost like okay, tell us your story, yeah. and we all sat in a room and the players just told us they they like, like I can't remember exactly what it was, but is it your biggest secret and funniest moment or something to that effect? And the stories that you hear about their families, when one person opens up, then everyone starts to, it's almost like a ripple effect. Um, so the coach started with his background story and something that really affected him in his life. Um, and then the players started opening up. And I think that moment was quite important for the team because in the Indian culture, as you guys know better than us, it's, it's very difficult just to open up and show emotion or show vulnerability or anything to that effect. And it's also difficult for us. Okay. Um, but in that environment, it was a closed environment um, and it was a safe environment where everyone was just allowed to open up and express their feelings um, and tell their, their story so everyone could know. Because a lot of the players didn't even know each other's story. Okay. Um, so it was really a good moment that. Yeah, we've gone through a fairly similar process just um, in terms of trying to get them to express themselves in a group environment. Um, and I think what I've noticed, certainly over the last uh, three years with the coaches we've got at the moment, it's like um, us as leaders, us as the coaches, if we can make ourselves vulnerable in front of them, they then feel vulnerable, they feel comfortable to make themselves vulnerable and open up about stories. So. Uh, during lockdown, actually, we had um, a lot of interactions around that sort of stuff because we knew, well, we wanted to maximize we, and we wanted to gain momentum from the situation. And one advantage that we had was that we were all together during that whole period. So yeah. we had to utilize that period in some way other than physical, yeah. and that was through building connections. Um, the guys needed each other because they were away from family just as we were, but we bonded together as a group. Um, and we really made a big thing around, you know, connecting on a deeper level, um, because they don't normally do that. You yeah. know, guys especially, it's, you know, it's, everything's just superficial. Um, so yeah, there were like challenging conversations around, you know, telling us about their deepest, you know, fears or deepest incidences. They were always like, yeah, tell us about your toughest period in life. Like, you know, and you've got to open up about that and it's difficult. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as soon as you did that and they showed emotion, um, other people in the team then started, you know, getting that deeper connection with them, and um, I think it definitely helped us. To be honest, like um, you just bind together as a group better yeah. uh, with greater connection. There's there's greater trust, and I think like we had two good examples during the Olympics where we feel that actually helped us. Um, one was the second game against Australia when we lost in this, and the, last, the second one was in the bronze medal match against Germany when we were 3-1 down. Um, typically, teams have just folded in that yeah. situation. Um, but we could actually really see like you know, the deliberate actions from players to build each other up and pull each other together as opposed to start blaming each other. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, that was a really powerful time for us as a team. Um, you seem to be making a habit of making comebacks. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how, how big is your entire motivational and people management part of your entire coaching language? And how do you go about, what do you look for when you're talking to an athlete? Like to really be able to connect with them, yes, from a vulnerable standpoint, but also from a behavior standpoint that you think that could be holding them back, but you really can't talk to them directly about it. Do you use a part of training language, something that you would, what's the common vocabulary where you can approach? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question and a tough question. I think it depends on individual, each individual. Yeah. Um, we both from the notion where we don't shout or scream mm -hmm. and we bring energy in different ways. Yeah. Um, so I'm more of a hand over the shoulder type guy and like, I can see something's up, let me know if you need to chat or... Um, 
or just ask them directly. And then you can see by their body language straight away if they're closed or open. And again, if I had to do that in 2017, they would like probably shun me away. <laughs> but now I know that I can 100% go up to any one of the players, put my hand over the shoulder, say, what's wrong? And they'll yeah. open up straight away. So I think it depends on the length of stay that you're in a, in a system. Sure. Because, like we said, we gain, you, you gain your trust. trust yeah. yeah, And it's with any relationship, I think. I think... Um, you start opening up the more you know people and the more you start to trust people and especially with like myself being a male coming into a female environment in India yeah. is also a very different thing um, but as soon as I realized my intentions are actually good and I want to do, make them better people make a better athlete whatever it might be literally now I know for sure if I ask them a question if they don't want to talk, I can see they don't want to talk yeah. just by their, their response. If they want to talk, they'll come and approach me if they need to talk. So uh, uh, there's no one word or one thing. I think it's just understanding the players over time. Yeah. What do you run? Yeah, I think it's just, um, I think the same thing, sort of just understanding how you can um, approach an individual, how, how can you get the best out of that individual. And it, like Wayne said, it might be just a slightly different approach, but there's never one silver bullet. It's right. like, um, you know, there might be an individual that doesn't like that sort of stuff, but you can do it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've got really too much more to add to it. I think um, what I did want to say is like, once you understand the greater purpose of like programming a bench press, yeah. like the whole thing becomes more meaningful. It's like, okay, bench press is a bench press, but I, so how I link the whole thing is like this one guy who's come with me from the junior team, he joined the team at that stage, he'd just broken his collarbone, he was on life support, and mm. his father had actually said to the doctors, you know, cut the life support, he's done. But um, he came through all of that and made himself, uh, came back into the national setup, and um, he's now won a bronze medal at the Olympics with the yeah. senior team. But... The whole thing is like he's been on a huge journey, like, and me programming a bench press for him is like, you know, there's just something greater to it. It's like I've given him opportunity now to improve as a hockey player, which has then given him an opportunity to improve life for his family. He's now bought a house for them, like all that sort of stuff. So, like, I think that's how I've tried to approach it as well. Like, just programming a bench press is there's a story behind there's it. There's a story behind it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I understand, and I mean, a bench press is a very elementary example, but. You know what I mean? It's like I know if we're programming sprints today, it's it's to make him a better hockey player because it's going to allow him to buy a house for his parents and give his parents a better life. So everything yeah. has a kind of much much bigger purpose behind it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think. So like I think this is what the whole psychology of inspiration. Yeah. You, you give them a reason to play that is beyond themselves. Yeah. And I think this is probably one of the big reasons that you keep talking to them in training. You build that reason from you build that why from them. And yeah, getting be able to get those comebacks. Yeah, getting them to understand like uh, the true power of knowing why you're doing something has also been quite important or powerful. Because often you'll ask a question like, "Why are you doing it?" It's like, "Oh no, I want to win a medal." Okay, but everyone wants to win a medal. Like there has to be some. The why has to be deeper than that, um, and it often comes down to something like that. You know, he's he's come off life support. He he was very close to not even being able to do what he's doing. So like. There's a greater why as to why, as to why he's now there. There's a greater push for him. Purpose. Yeah, purpose. So, um, like, we spent quite a lot of time also trying to get a little bit deeper than just everyone saying, I'm here to win a medal. Okay, we understand that. But what's the deeper why? And I think, because it's tough. Like, they spend, they spend nine months locked up, you know. Um, and you really need to have a strong why as to why you keep waking up every morning in that environment. So... And it's a stressful environment. You've yeah. got external stress, you've yeah. got physical stress, you've got emotional stress, cognitive stress. Yeah. You've been challenged in every single way and you're stuck among people who are also pushing, which is again high intensity. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's exactly that. I think um, on that why thing, what we try to push also, similar to what Rob's and them saying, is that inspiring women in India. Um, and I think that gave something clicked with the players with that because we took the medal out the equation now and we're like, okay, but there's a different purpose. And you can actually make such a difference for inspiring young athletes, young women in India, because you can see we didn't win a medal, but in the end, the team was really well respected for what they achieved at the Olympics, not because of 
getting a medal, but because of the approach to the whole system. Um, and I think if your athletes can get, like Rob says, the bigger picture, and more, in the end it's, and when we lost the medal match, I was thinking to myself, well, that, that medal is just a medal for England, but for our girls it would have changed the world mm -hmm. in, in, in India. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, the response they got from India was phenomenal anyways. Yeah. Um, and I think athletes need to find that. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation with Wayne and Robin. Stay tuned to the Invictus Performance Podcast as we will be releasing part 2 of this episode soon. The second part has some gold when it comes to strength and conditioning and sports science as we discuss the various methods and processes that Wayne and Robin have used over the years in their own development as coaches. Meanwhile, you may check out the APA Training Systems website and the Instagram page for an insight into the work they have been doing over the years on their road to building better athletes. Thank you and please like, share and subscribe to the Invictus Performance Podcast. Stay tuned.